Today's episode of Tampering is brought to you by Game Time. Okay, folks, time for a little pop quiz. Do you think that Lakers tickets are cheaper three weeks or three hours before the game? You can find the answer with Game Time, the ticket buying app that proves patience is more than just a virtue. It can save you some serious cash. Game Time is the leader in last minute tickets. Pick your deal, see the view from where you're sitting, and buy in two taps. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. So download Game Time in the App Store or Google Play, work that clock to your advantage and score some last-minute tickets. I would like to see us play harder. You know, that, that'll help a little bit, but the reality is we fucking suck right now. Everybody's going to interpret that I'm trying to tamper with you. Welcome to Tampering with Sam Amick and Joe Varden. It's a beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. Uh-huh. To be able to bring people together. What do you do, baby? Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executives in the league is stop talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Was right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. It's <laughs> <laughs> awkward to even talk about it. I can't even mention teams anymore. Actually, what I like to play with Kevin Durant. The trial you want with the tampering, they're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. Everybody went off like I have tampered with the guys. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Hello and welcome to another edition of Tampering, the Athletics Insider Podcast. We are standing strong and tall out in front of the paywall. Once again, this is Joe Varden and coming to us uh, via remote in Houston, my partner and friend Sam Amick. Sam, hello. Good morning, Joe. I feel like I've been in Houston for quite some time, ready to get home, but thanks for having me, brother. Yeah, it's like you took a covered wagon down there and then the wheels fell off. <laughs> <laughs> well, the wheels fell off the, the rockets a few weeks back, but we're moving forward here. Uh, hey. This is the basketball only. We are moving forward, but no, it's been a good trip. Uh, we got OKC on tap tonight, the Russell Westbrook reunion, Chris Paul game, so plenty to get into. Yeah, and uh, well, I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but Sam and I were actually in Houston together uh, for a few days, and I was very happy um, about this part, is that Sam, for the first time, I think, since we've been working together, did not dress like a banker for the Rockets <laughs> opener. He had on a pair of jeans, an untucked shirt. Um, you know, it was good to see. Refreshing. I told you that t- at the point, you, we got to give credit where credit's due. Our, our friend and colleague, Rachel Nichols at ESPN, is a little bit of a mother hand to all of us. And she's always in my ear about like, why do you dress like a accountant? You cover sports, feel comfortable. So I'm, I think I'm going that direction this season. This is good because now she will stab you for calling her a mother hen. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. What am I supposed- <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, uh, joining us um, on the newest NBA sinking ship is uh, our friend and one of the very best in the business, Anthony Slater. Anthony, where are you? I was actually in Houston this morning for about 20 minutes. Uh, I had to connect through Houston, but I am now in New Orleans after. Uh, wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, but, you know, back to back, first one of the year for the Warriors. They've only played two games, which I think is tied for the fewest. So uh, they got to get this back to back in to get a third game. Maybe they can keep it within single digits tonight. Slater, yeah, had, I, had I known, I, I mean, how do you not give me the heads up that it was going to be? As bad as it was yesterday, I could have hopped on a short little flight, come to join you, and chronicle the uh, 
the downfall of a dynasty. My God, man, that that was an ugly affair. Yeah, it, and right away, you knew I fifteen three, and you know I I've heard about it a little bit, but fifteen three in past years would be like, you know, the Warriors are down twelve. Well, this should be fun to see them try to you know climb out of it tonight. Fifteen three yesterday was like, oh, it's over. Like, oh, should we check in on these NFL games? Or like, you know, you're sitting there like, you know, zero and two already marked it down, which kind of uh i mean you can see it in the mood of draymond green by the second quarter he's already kind of like given up uh d'angelo russell uh asked out of the game essentially basically begged for an ejection to get out of there um and it's it's just very weird to see the warriors in this state and against a against a bad thunder team right a thunder team that scored 85 points against the wizards two nights earlier uh had 105 and three quarters i mean i've seen this uh from teams who you know have gone to a bunch of finals in the row in a row and they start out in october they just they just don't care and they get beat about like this like really badly um but i don't i don't think that's what's going on here so much i think it's more of roster turnover and maybe this is going to be a a long year i mean like is it too early to start saying things like that no, not really. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's necessarily like a lack of motivation. Like there was a thought going into the year and a feeling even around the boards of like, oh, it's kind of refreshing like to have to teach young guys and like, oh, the regular season will be interesting to like go into games and uh, really feel like there's something on the line. Whereas in past years, it was like, whatever, wake us up in mid-April. Um, but it's just uh, two things. I mean, like the nine guys 23 or younger like they're they're playing guys who just like are not established nba players at all and then also the injuries uh are are, you know have kind of piled up i mean losing willie collie stein before camp even started um thinned out the position that was already thin at center uh and then now kevon looney who he played 10 minutes in the opener it was by far their best 10 minutes they had a defensive rating of like 97 and kevon looney's 10 minutes but the problem is he was having he's been having these recurring hamstring issues and they've traced it back to this uh neuropathy i think is how you say it but basically nerve issues that he has that apparently he's been dealing with for a few years now um which is a much greater long-term concern than hey he's just got a little bit of a hamstring issue he needs to get over so they now have are getting zero minutes from the two th- centers they thought were going to give them 48 minutes. So that's killed their big man spot. They're basically playing two traditional power forwards, Marquise Chris and Omari Spellman, going against a guy like Steven Adams yesterday. So getting nothing from the center. Small forward was already probably the thinnest small forward spot in the league with Glenn Robinson, Alec Burks, and Alfonso McKinney. But to even get Chris on the roster, they had to cut McKinney. So, not, I mean, it's just, I mean, when you may ha- might have the worst small forward grouping in the league and at this point with the injuries the worst center spot in the league uh it's kind of been tough otherwise and draymond green has looked very unmotivated to try to pick up the slack so anthony you as you know uh no one else knows this but during these games i send you funny texts uh usually about marquise chris occasionally uh about the coach uh who i love i love steve um I'm concerned for him i i don't know if he is cut out for this um, which is captaining a team that's that could be pretty bad uh, a- after going to five straight finals. It's it's hard to deal with. Um, but I just want to point out that you named two players who spent most of their time on the second worst team in the NBA last year. Um, it would be Chris and and Burks uh, who were here in Cleveland. 
And now they're a part of the warrior rotation. I mean, is there, is this something that you, that that the warriors have to try to address this year? Like, do do they have to turn this over quickly? They can't. They're hard capped. I mean, that's the other problem here. Uh, You know, the 13 of the guys are guaranteed. They have the 14th roster spot, which is the Chris roster spot. And they actually need him right now. He's starting at center. Um, And he's the only non-guaranteed. Uh, and, you know, they can't fill the 15th spot because they are, I think, $375,000 from the hard cap, which they can't surpass because of the D'Angelo Russell trade. I mean, that's the reality of this past summer is uh, the Russell tr- move was made very much with the uh, future beyond this season in mind. It, it, it forced them to give up Andre Iguodala in the last year of his deal. Um, and, you know, it, it very much handcuffed what they could do. Um, so no, I mean, I, they, there really aren't answers. The answers are getting some of their injured guys back, needing Steph Curry to maybe jack 14 threes a game, maybe needing to retailer the offense, which I know a lot of the fan base is kind of already up in arms about is he's Steve Kerr still kind of trying to run more of like a motion offense, but you know, it's no longer David West at the high post trying to run, you know, throw it to back cuts. It's not like Omari Spellman and it's just not working. So maybe you just go heavy pick and roll with, with Steph and D'Angelo Russell and, and, and really try to utilize the top heavy part of your roster. Um, but again, you know, Oh, and two it's, it's not panic time, but it does not look good. Slater. I'm going to throw it to you this way. First of all, real quickly. And admittedly, I've not watched these games. I've seen the boxes. I've seen the highlights or the lowlights and I've, read the commentary, been reading your stuff as always, but quickly fun with numbers. The once vaunted Warriors offense is coming in at a 24th in the league and offensive rating um, near the bottom of the barrel, but the defensive side is where it's a complete dumpster fire last in the NBA, 124.3 defensive rating about a, a gap of about seven points per 100 possessions allowed uh, between them and the Charlotte Hornets at number 29. So ugly, ugly stuff. Um, If nothing else, though, and this is what you do so well as far as painting the picture of how the team you cover reacts to the good and the bad, at least Draymond's giving you gold, man. (laughs) Because Draymond postgame with his commentary, and as our colleague and buddy Michael Lee put on Twitter yesterday, you know, he said Draymond's new nickname should be Mr. 100 because he's just not, he's not pulling any punches. Um, from Draymond on down, just how is you know, this level of struggle, you know, hitting the group? Well, it's it's a bit jarring for them. I mean, they knew some of it was coming, but this has, you know, been a smack in the face early on. I I kind of criticized Draymond a little bit in in what I wrote yesterday because uh, you know I'm I like that he is giving us this honesty. Obviously, I mean, it created unbelievable content for us, but. Like, what do his young teammates think about some of the stuff he's saying, you know? And, um, you know, we've it's it's kind of interesting to me because I thought I think the thought process coming into the season was like, wow, man, Draymond might blow a gasket at one of his young teammates, uh, you know, because he's never had to deal with like these young mistakes. He might just be on the court, you know, yelling over here, yelling at the bench, yelling at Steve Kerr. Uh, He's not. He's kind of unemotional out there. He's kind of seems resigned. Uh, to their current state, and again, it's two games. They're you know they're not sitting there right now in you know mid February like teetering. It, it, they are only zero and two, but I just haven't seen much emotion or or you know give a you know whatever level from him out there. And I think that's leading to some of this stuff too, where 
Um, you know, part, yes, the defensive issues are personnel based in a lot of senses. They they have a lack of size. They have you know at the on the perimeter with the guards and even uh, at the center spot. But um, maybe if Draymond was really trying to rev them up and was yelling and was getting on them, maybe the young guys would play with a bit more force because they're not. I mean, it, it like they are just kind of floating around and, and then they look over at the leader and he's just kind of sitting there like like he's waiting for next season and maybe that is the right play by him maybe he shouldn't expend this type of energy for a season that might be lost anyways without clay thompson um but you know if, if they're seeing him not care then they're seeing him go out in the media and be like we suck whatever right, we right. Suck. You know, i mean the-, the group who has been there the last five years how much they they're shell-shocked right now because even outside looking in having not been around them I can't even – I'm doing double takes at the TV. And like yesterday, watching what happened at OKC uh, just on SportsCenter, I'm sitting there going, man, I, the, the old Steve Kerr quote came to mind from the playoff run last year when he you know, he said, these guys are fucking giants. And it, it, I was thinking about like what they had accomplished and who they were within the scope of the NBA and the fact that for such a long stretch, everybody around this league just had to retool its roster to try to get at these guys. And – you got two sides to this thing for them. They're shell shocked for the rest of the league. You know, some people are loving it. In fact, one of your old buddies who I was, I was definitely curious to get your read on this situation. I want to try to decode the one and only Kendrick Perkins because Kendrick is not wasting any time going in on, you know, the demise of the warriors. He's been tweeting about Steve Kerr, just completely putting him on blast. He's putting Steph on blast. Uh, and then I think, that he might be the first guy doing this, but I think it's probably the first of, of what we're going to hear a lot of the season, which is people kind of calling into question some of their legacy and, and probably, I don't think fair because what they accomplished is what they accomplished, but you know, there's blood in the water for sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, beyond just like, you know, the pundits, like the Kendrick Perkins now, you know, prime pundit out there, but um, like Chris Paul, you know, enjoyed killing the, the Warriors right. yesterday. You know, these, right. these opponents who have been, you know, kind of beat up in the past by bullied, but in the past by the Warriors will enjoy kind of, you know, flipping roles. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because, again, if you take all of the human element out of it, if you take all of emotion out of it or, or, or worrying about what the outside world thinks, I think the proper plan for the Warriors this year probably would be to just kind of give up, you know, like not basically make sure you protect your pick which is top 20 protected maybe even try to get a very high pick you know go in the lottery barely play Steph and Draymond don't allow them to 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 waste much energy because they have a finite amount of energy as as their primes are kind of heading towards uh the later stages um allow Clay to patiently rehab do not rush him back um you know just focus on kind of trying to develop younger guys within a system and and take all the losses you can have but the problem is you know Steph enjoys playing basketball does not want to see tweets by Kendrick Perkins and people like that and and probably wants to have an MVP chase and Draymond Green certainly is not enjoying the commentary out there about him so um it, it's 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 kind of a balance also you know again we can talk about this being a gap year but they still have to live this year we still have to go to arenas and cover these games and and ask them questions each post game that they have to answer and so it's just i don't know it's again it's kind of like we've talked about tanking and, and all these sports over the years and, and it sounds great in theory, but then like you still have to live the seasons that you're tanking. So there's a lot to get to there. And and I wanted to start with my mother. 
Um, my mom uh, lives in Northeast Ohio, and like most women of, we'll just say her age, um, they all like collectively cannot stand Steph Curry. Uh, it goes back to all the finals in Cleveland and him throwing his mouthpiece. Like if you if you did a poll in Northeast Ohio, Steph would poll it like twenty percent. I mean, it would be it would be bad. Um, but I was talking to her last night, and she was actually kind of aghast as well at, at at how badly the Warriors are playing right now overall. And and what she was saying kind of brought a broader point to me, which is. <clears throat> Like, you, you know, people like to celebrate when a champion falls, but if this is how it's going to be, and like we've been saying it here for now for five minutes, how this is a really long ass season, um, I, it's not good for the NBA, for the Warriors to suck like this. Um, it no. just isn't. And, you know, it's bad. It's bad for the Chase Center, which, you know, people aren't going to cry over billionaires. I understand that. But it's bad for business there. And then, you know, I, I wrote a big story last week that talks about how the league and really how the two TV networks put together their schedule. And it's all based on who you want to see on the best games, like on the most important nights of the year. And then they kind of build out the rest of the schedule accordingly. And one of the important parts of the schedule are the or the ABC Saturday night games. And I'm flipping through that right now here. And I think the Warriors are on two or three times. I mean, they're on a ton of times um, on Saturday night basketball. And I know they're on Christmas. They're probably on MLK Day. Um, they, yeah, I'm, I think they that's have the second most, second most at national TV a ton after the All-Star break. Um, what's interesting is like, they are in some ways kind of the story of the league right now because seeing them struggle is like very novel to people. And like, you know, these comments are interesting people. It's like, wow, like what you're saying, seeing kind of like a giant go down is drawing eyeballs and attention. But at some point, if this is in December and they're, you know, eight games under 500, like the struggles just become the new reality and people stop paying attention. And then suddenly, you know, your biggest draw the last half decade uh, becomes kind of irrelevant for, you know, a little while, a little bit like, you know, when the Lakers kind of had their downturn, although the Lakers seem to kind of still find a way to uh, build drama. So people still paid attention even while they were going through their rough years. But yeah, I mean, it, if the Warriors aren't in the playoffs this year, it's basically like, you know, LeBron not being in the playoffs last year was bad for business. The Warriors not being in the playoffs would be very bad for NBA business. Slater, if you got to drill down on one or two X's and O's basketball reasons that this thing is happening. I know the list is much longer than that, but with this framing, like what has happened so far that uh, you did not anticipate and that you think is, you know, sending them down this road? Because again, outside looking in, like Draymond, uh, the, the scoring was something that you and Marcus Thompson had written a lot about the fact that he needed to contribute more on that end. I know D'Angelo allegedly is, is not passing the ball much to Steph. I mean, I've seen some of the feedback, but, you know, what jumps out to you? I mean, I, I do think the center spot um, is like a big problem that's probably being undersold a little bit because like the two guys they're missing aren't aren't their big names, but they're just like, you know, I would say league average to above average. I, you know, I think Looney's really kind of coming to his own and, and, you know, they were pumped. I mean, the whole league, I thought was like, wow, they got him back at five million a year. Like what what a steal. Um but was that now, maybe correlated? I mean, not to interrupt you, sorry, but like that thought crossed my mind too. I mean, now looking back at it, since you mentioned earlier that this was something he had dealt with for a while, is there any chance? Yeah, just- well, what's interesting, I don't think, I, you know, I, I don't know. 
I, I don't know how much that was publicly available, or I guess available behind the scenes, because it was that was the first anybody uh, publicly had heard of it, at least you know from our perspective. And, and no, I and get yours. that. I just, but if you're him and if you know about it, it's the same. Like, listen, on a different track, Buddy Hill takes that extension in Sacramento, and I know that when he looked at his money, it was like just that general concept of I'm healthy now. I can't guarantee I'll be healthy next year. Let's grab the bag. So, you know, if you're well, Kevon and you know you have a, an issue. Looney had had more on the table. Off oh, that's elsewhere. right. All right. Not, n- yeah. Nothing crazy. But, you know, like, he, you know, there was – he probably could have got $7 million here somewhere else. He took $5 million with the worst. Right. Um, but uh, he – you know, one thing I'll say is, like, he kind of has, like, the older type body. If I just – if you didn't know the NBA at all and he was just, like, walking down the street or even if you were just watching him play but you just didn't know the league at all – uh, you know, I said, how old is that guy? He'd be like, maybe like 33, 34. He's only 23, but he's just kind of the way he moves and his gait and his body. It's just kind of like older, more like kind of a painful look. He had two major hip surgeries when he was like 21 and 22. Um, so I, you know, I, I do start to worry about his long-term health. Um, uh, we'll see. I mean, look, he's seeing a team of specialists on this, uh, issue he has going right now. It's possible he's back in a, you know, a couple weeks, let's say, and, uh, suddenly they would be a lot more shored up. You know, you were asking me about like the court product. Um, he would really help suddenly, you know, they had zero blocks in their opener against the Clippers. They had three yesterday and it was all Amari Spellman, who's an undersized five, but, um, so they've only had three blocks in two games. And we're talking about a team the last five years that led the league in shot blocks almost every single season. Um, so, I mean like zero rim protection in the back end. And that has kind of put pressure on a perimeter defense that has taken a massive decline because all the wing defenders are gone. Livingston, Iguodala, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, great defender. Uh, and and right now it's replaced with Steph and D'Angelo Russell. I mean, D'Angelo Russell has has had a terrible start defensively. Um, you should have seen some of the stuff like what Gallinari did to him on a switch uh, yesterday um, before he got ejected. So, again, he – we can talk about the offense, and, and, and that has been a topic of conversation in kind of the online Warriors world. Um, but as Steph Curry said yesterday when I asked him about the offense, he's like, I can't even think about the offense right now because every single time we're taking the ball under the basket, we're demoralized because we just gave up more points, and we're kind of walking it into a set half-court defense. Um, and, and, and there's really like a lack of motivation. So to me, it's all defensive. Okay. You just said his name a couple times there, Steph. Um, playing alongside a highly functioning Clay, uh, with a motivated Draymond and an excellent um, supporting cast. You know, throw Katie in there if you want. The last couple of years, Steph changed the league. Um, he's been one of the most dynamic players we've seen. We all know it. We all know why. Um, but now he's got this. And the results are what they have been. Um, and there's been some fun, you know, chatter on Twitter about, well, LeBron has been waiting for this because he has played with lesser talent um, and, and carried teams in the past. People look to the 2018-18 team and we can debate that if you want. But my question for you is, does Steph have the game? Is he the kind of player that can take a bad team, put, him, put it on his shoulders and carry it somewhere? I think so. Um, I, you go back to I, I know sixteen was a different type of team, but like remember the run he went on with like just like forty straight game or forty points and like you know a crazy amount of straight games and 
Um, I just think right now, th- maybe he is throttling it back a little bit. I think partly like this how Steve's running the offense and wanting to try to kind of introduce these young Warriors players into like the system that had been so successful for the Warriors over the years, the motion offense, um, the, the aggressiveness level from Steph is not what it has been for like, let's say Harden, uh, when he was on that absurd run with the Rockets or m- remember the, the Westbrook MVP year, just like that incredibly high usage rate where it was just every night, just try to use as many possessions as possible to me that, if the Warriors decide they want to chase the playoffs, they want to chase it hard, they're probably their best answer to compete on a nightly basis right now is just Steph Curry takes a, just an absurd amount of shots. And he's, it's just high pick and roll. And, you know, it's funny. They were down 15-3 yesterday, and he just walked in, and I think he was a bit frustrated by what had happened. He just stepped into like a 30-footer early in the shot clock, top of the key. Uh, bad shot to most people, but it's Steph Curry, and he hit it. And it was like, well, he should probably do that 20 more times. Just, you know, just just go shoot a three. You know, don't worry about, like, running this or that. But, again, I think in Steve Kerr's mind, is that really good for these young guys who they're trying to develop this year? If it's just, hey, Steph Curry, go shoot a bunch of times. Go ask the Thunder was was what Russell Westbrook did during that MVP season, the, the triple-double average. Was that good for the development of the young players? I don't know. Probably not. Right. Um, right. It got them in the playoffs. It got the Thunder in the playoffs. It it made Russell Westbrook, a, you know, a hero. Um, but I'm, you know, so that's kind of, I guess, the balance they're trying to strike. Uh, and it it's challenging. I mean, it's an interesting situation there. Give us a little more Slater on the the you know the most prominent guys in this crew and and how they're reacting to all this stuff. So when it comes to Steve, you know, the the on court stuff is one thing, but you covered him for a long time now. You know. How he's wired. You talk to him on the side after the the scrum is over. Uh, how hard is this hitting him? And and what's your perspective on? I don't like. To me, I do kind of laugh at the idea. And even Joe, you kind of mentioned a second ago that that is he cut out for this? I mean, we're talking two games with a guy who, when he first got to Golden State, you know, we know the backstory. You you take uh, Andre Iguodala and, and convince him to come off the bench. You wind up making Draymond Green the starter. Make some key moves that led to their dynasty and played a big part, this is a, a completely different challenge. But I do think that he deserves a chance to, to you know, give it a go. And you talk to their assistants, like I did in, the, in preseason training camp, you know, at that time there was an energy like, hey, we're teaching. We're out here with long practices and, and, and more sweat than before in the regular season. And they were kind of embracing it, you know, but now you're seeing the, the tough results. Where, where do you think he's at? I in I think he's more energized than in the last couple regular seasons. I mean, remember talking to him like during the slog of the last few years where there's it was just drama dripping all over the team, and um, you know, like the regular season games didn't matter, uh, and he everyone just seemed kind of drained by just the microscope they were under. I actually do think he is enjoying like. Uh, you know, you talk to him, he's like, yeah, these young guys, you know, they got really good attitudes coming out here. Now, again, that was, you know, either before these first two losses or to the point that where they're only 0-2. Now, if this gets much worse, maybe you'll see a different mindset. But mostly his attitude right now, at least to us, is uh, expectations management. He's come out repeatedly and been like, hey, get used to this. This is the new reality. I mean, he did it again last night. And in the middle of making a bunch of excuses, he said, look, I know I'm making a bunch of excuses, but they're just they're real. These these excuses are facts. Um, So it's kind of interesting. I I know just kind of talking to him a little bit off to the side. He was stunned in 
like pre uh, like when he was reading some of the preseason stuff about like where people were ranking them, like in the West, right. saying, you know, right. when Clay when Clay comes back in March, here they come, you know, he's gonna store back on the court and they're gonna go like try to rip off another title. That's again, I think partly why he said the thing about Clay about how it's probably unlikely he's coming back and and why he keeps coming out. I mean, after the debut night in the Chase Center where they get smacked, he comes out in post game and says, "Well, you know, they, this isn't a one off." You know, basically, hey, these fans that just pay these absurd prices, they better get used to it. Enjoy all the amenities elsewhere in the chase. Like to that point and without outing somebody, uh, although somebody studied my travel schedule, they could probably connect the dots. I I ran into somebody the other day who knows Steve extremely well. And I did think it was interesting that that person had said they were like, listen, like he knew this was coming. And I was like, really? You sure? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, he knew how tough it was going to be. And, and I think you're right. That's when, you know, he decides to start changing the framing and get it out there that clay likely isn't going to play this year and start lowering expectations. They might've waited a little too long. I know it'd be weird to do that in the preseason. You got to let the games actually start. But even when they played the Lakers in LA in the preseason and, and Joe and I were there you, behind the scenes, there was a little bit of that, like, ah, it's going to be a long year. And, and they were starting to try to to frame it, but you know, I don't. They didn't act like this was coming. Yeah, uh, I'm. I'm curious to see where it goes, even in the next tonight in New Orleans, and even in the next week, like where his messaging goes, because uh, the expectations have been lowered. You know, like the 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 world has caught on, and at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if Steve comes out a bit more forceful in the next few games. You know, pregame, postgame, whatever, and. Um, you know, starts talking about what they can be a little bit and maybe tries to either motivate some of these young players with like um, either criticizing them for poor play or just like saying how like, you know, I really see these guys coming along. You know, I just don't think he can keep um, kind of being like, well, you know, get used to it. This is going to be a long year. Like at some point, the fan base is and I shouldn't say at some point, I can already tell the fan base is kind of getting a little bit tired of it. Draymond Green, again, the same thing as we were talking about earlier. He's kind of parroting the whole uh, whatever type of mentality. And, you know, in an 82-game season, like, you know, it's it, it at some point will become a little bit uh, disrespectful to the, the paying customer. Sure. So we've been kind of going through a lot of the micro. Um, let's look at the macro real quick. And I'm talking about the one and only Joe Lacob because I've had conversations in the past about Joe and the way he runs the Warriors and his personality, his demeanor. And you're talking about a guy who's been forceful and aggressive and it's panned out in championship ways for this franchise. But the fans, I think a lot mainstream fans, I I don't know if they necessarily understand like how weird and complex ownership issues are with teams that have a, you know, majority owner or a lead owner, the governor, and then a bunch of minority owners. And like the idea that had been posited to me, going into the year was that, you know, keep an eye on how the, just the, the Warriors infrastructure um, kind of unfolds when the success isn't there. And it's interesting, and this is a, a tough parallel, but it's, as you guys know, I'm based in Sacramento. I've seen ownership issues out the wazoo, you know, since Vivek Ranadive took over years ago. And, and so in that vein, it's like, what are you feeling when it comes to just what that uh, level is going to look like if the team struggles and, and just all the, the politics behind the scenes on that front. Well, I mean, you know, Steve just locked in recently to, you know, a, a pretty lucrative extension. He's still very highly regarded within the organization. Um, Myers this summer 
uh, extended. Um, there's stability at those two very important points of uh, the organization. And I mean, Joe, in some ways, Joe's kind of become this like, you know, character to the outside world of like, you know, steaming Joe Lake of like, oh, they lose one game and, you know, like watch out. Everybody's job is on the line. But he's more rational than that. I mean, he's the guy that hired Steve Kerr, that hired Bob Myers, hired these level headed guys and has really kind of while being while he is, um, you know, very visible and sometimes vocal, even uh, he has been pretty hands off on. Uh, you know, like he's allowed Steve and Bob to kind of do their thing. So uh, I think he understands the situation. He's, you know, he'll probably grumble a little bit and particularly like he, he's going to struggle if they, if they're a bad home team this year and they regularly get blown out at home. Um, it's, he's not going to like it, but I, I, I don't like expect any type of like rash decisions from Joe. I and mean, maybe the quotes at some points might be funny, but, um, and, and as far as like the, the ownership structure goes, um, you know, he, they, the other owners, the minority owners seem to, besides Peter Goober seem to have just kind of allowed him to, to be the voice and face uh, of that ownership group. And, you know, I, I'm not necessarily sure I see that changing. The one thing, and Tim Kawakami wrote about it the other day, even if they're bad this season, they're still making just absolutely outrageous amounts of money with that arena. You know, seven hundred million. million. Yeah, and yeah. behind only the Dallas Cowboys and all of American sports. So I mean, like, it's not like they could. Most of the owners probably aren't unhappy because, like, whatever we're rolling in the cash anyways. To put that in context, sorry, Joe, I'll make it fast. That what's crazy about that number? That's my understanding is that is roughly the same amount annually that the entire NBA gets out of China, and which has obviously been a major focal point recently. Um, I mean, that's just an, an obscene amount of cash that they're pulling in. And, and so what it means, uh, one, is that it doesn't matter how many games they lose this year. All all the seats are sold out, right? Yeah, and like the suites particular is like the yeah. crazy one. And and these people, like, for example, we went on our tour, like, you know, right when they were kind of unveiling it right before the preseason. And they took us to these like bunker suites they have where it's it's – kind of like obviously it's a very cool deal where they have these like really nice suites with like butlers and they're like under the the lower level and your seat is actually like the sixth row and it's like these like sanctioned off seats kind of makes for a weird segregated part of like the lower bowl but if you happen to own these suites it's pretty awesome to have a suite but also be in the sixth row you know usually if you're in a suite you're basically in like the second level um and those were 10 you had to have like a between a 10 and 15 year commitment. And it's, you know, like basically I think it's 2 million a year to get the suite. So you, you basically have already have committed to paying them, uh, over 20 million over like a 10 year period. Uh, so they're fine in that sense. And you get those suites for all the concerts and, and Sam knows like they've just been rolling out concert after concert. You know, the Warriors are on this road trip right now, pretty much every time they go on the road, it's like, Oh, Phil Collins is, is currently at the arena and the Warriors are making that, you know, that's mm-hmm. money going to the Warriors. That's so, a tough, that's a tough act though, Joe. They play in the, you know, in the air tonight. And they're thinking about, they're the playing days. my song. Yeah. Yeah. My you know, old days. And we take, we take the, uh, Sam knows this. I take, uh, every, every Saturday, my kid plays flag football. And the last song we listen to before we get to the ballpark, wherever it is, is in the air tonight. So my nine-year-old knows when he hears that song, it's time to bust some ass. <laughs> 
the uh, uh, I, I want to make a bigger point though, and 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 let me let me ask you a quick follow up, so then I can make this bigger point. It it has to do with everything you were talking about just now with the arena, and making money hand over fist. Um, do you think Steve Kerr is cut out for this this year? Yeah, I, you know I I think um, I they you know again if it's twenty win season, if it's a twenty five win season, a thirty win season, maybe we can. Uh, kind of revisit this question, but I think if it's like a, even if it's like a 42 win season where um, they, they, you know, don't make the playoffs, I think he'll enjoy like the, the steady growth of young players and like feeling like they are kind of maybe developing the, the core of the future. He's been excited about that aspect of the season. Now, again, if, if they're just getting smacked every night, like nobody's going to be pumped about that. But um, I, to me, he's, he, you know, he's been as invigorated to just like sit there and talk basketball with you uh, more than in years past where we didn't want to talk basketball. We're like, hey, what about this, Ke- you know, Kevin story today? Hey, did you hear this comment behind the scenes? Like he's enjoying like the basketball teaching side of this. OK, so here's here's the bigger point. Uh, they're going to make money hand over fist no matter what this year. Um, and. They've got a coach who has been nothing but wildly successful for his entire career as a head coach. They also have three major superstars under contract for a long time. So this, however bad this gets this year, would be less of a reason to panic and react and do something crazy like fire the coach or make some giant rebuilding trade. Because it's probably like a one-year thing, right? Like whether it was last year in Cleveland when they lost their first six games and fired the coach who had been to a bunch of finals in a row. Like there were reasons for that. Like the the the, fi- the yeah. finals run here was over. It was over. So it's time to rebuild. Like so as for as miserable as of a year as you and Steve and Joe Lacob and Bob Myers and Steph, like for as, for as bad as it's going to be this year, and it could be pretty bad. Um, it's probably short lived and you could have all three of your guys back next year, plus maybe a top lottery pick. Um, you know, you trade D'Angelo Russell at some point, get some more movable pieces, workable pieces. So that that's like, that's the crazy thing. Maybe unlike anything we've seen in a while in the NBA, like you could have a rotten team this year that turns around and kicks ass next year. Yeah. I mean, Clay Thompson is the two biggest words here that like keep hope alive i guess right i mean he's he's um it, it, i don't know i like i like clay on the tnt set personally i think that's where he needs to go next hey it, <laughs> apparently his dad has been like motivating him to to like hey you know go join the broadcast like you know keep yourself active um and engaged a little bit yeah it, i just again like if if you said, well, this team is struggling, but I think this summer maybe they could sign a, a max level free agent like a Clay Thompson. You'd be like, okay, yeah, that would really help. I mean, that's essentially like he's in their chamber. It's just like the, the Nets. Anything, if we were sitting here and having a deep dive discussion on the Nets, we would always be mentioning Kevin Durant. And not that Clay Thompson is Kevin Durant, but Clay Thompson is top 20 player in the league. I mean, he completely changes clearly the defense. Um, and it not, and he's one of the greatest shooters ever. So, um, yeah, that addition just like, it, not only that, like it just like if Clay Thompson was playing, Draymond Green would be more motivated right now. It seems like everyone would kind of be more motivated. So, uh, that's lingering down the line. Um, 
And, and again, you can sell that to, as we were talking about earlier, like your ownership group, your season ticket holders, like, like you said, this isn't like LeBron left the Cavs and like, uh Oh, get ready for, you know, five years of a massive rebuild. Um, this is like, Hey, you know, this season might stink, but, but better times, you know, ahead very soon. All right, Slater, we're going to get you out of here. And I'm trying to, you know, find one little sliver of silver lining for that fan base that reads you so religiously. So, I mean, the best I can come up with, like, is there just pick something positive? Is there anybody? Is it Jordan Poole? Somebody showing a little something that that uh, that that falls on the uh, the rare positive side here? Or is it all uh, completely bleak and black? Uh, Eric. Eric Pascal already looks like a really good pick at 41st overall. I mean, to get him in the second round, uh, 23 mature, uh, can defend multiple spots. Uh, I think he will help their defense. I think he will continually get more minutes as this season goes on. Um, and if he can play some three, uh, I think that's going to be interesting to them. He was kind of, he was in the closing first half lineup when Looney was still healthy. Um, for for the opener and it was like it, it actually was like a pretty good lineup like i said i mean those were probably their 10 best minutes this year so again like you know i actually think they hit on the draft pick with with pascal 41st overall it, we'll still see on jordan Poole. i think he's three of like 21 shooting in his first two games but clearly uh, i'm not I, even watching i just threw his name out there yeah <laughs> no. uh but you know he was good in the preseason he shot it well just like, wanted to own that for the audience yeah no um so Again, yeah, I, I I think they I think they had a good draft. Now I don't think they've necessarily had a very good draft the last few, but I think this one they did. All right, you're welcome, Warriors fans. We had to give you something, um, Anthony. Great job as always. We will be seeing you soon. Thanks for joining us, brother. All right, fellas. Tell Griff we said hello in New, in New Orleans. Yeah. All right, got you. All right. Man. Well, yeah. I'm drinking through that segment. Damn. I'm just <laughs> telling you, even like, listen, if my mom is on this, if yeah, she's love, like smelling how good. bad the Warriors are, yeah. I mean, you know, can we make mom what, like a regular segment? I think we need to take a pulse with mom every once in a while. It, that's not a bad idea. Um, that's a really good that's idea. That's not a bad idea. So, all right. So, as I said at the top, um, you and I were actually hanging out in in Houston last week, and our 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 trip there began actually on, on I guess it would be Wednesday night, uh, watching the World Series with some of the Bucks guys, and it, it had just come down that Giannis had told a Harvard researcher that if the Bucks, you know, take a step backwards or don't get better, I forget what the verb was. Um, that it would be harder for him to come back. And obviously that is a major fucking headache for the people that we were uh, having beers with. Um, you know, I, it's funny, Sam, I, I wrote, I did my first thoughts off of that game and a bunch of them were about this because obviously that's going to be the story that hangs over the Bucks all year and their fans were mad at me about this. Um, can't imagine why, but I just... You know, I mean, these are his words, right? Like he's he's basically vocalizing what everybody knows to be true, which is if the Bucks don't take a step forward, which would mean the finals, um, then he his decision to take that max uh, that super max gets harder. Yeah, it, it also I mean, listen, first of all, to be fair to Giannis, uh, you know, his response that day when you had kind of pointedly asked him to clarify what he was telling us in a media scrum 
that he uh, was misquoted in essence, and you kind of drilled down on that. And he he claimed, I believe that he had not been familiar with the word underperforming and didn't think that was a word he would ever use. So he claimed that you know the quote was off a little bit. Regardless, uh, the spirit of what he said is what it is, and it also falls in line with you know another story that definitely irritated the Bucks organization, which was at the the uh, right at the conclusion of the conference finals when ESPN dropped its piece saying kind of sourcing this same perspective and saying that, you know, if, if they didn't get better, it would be tough for him to sign that extension. There's also for me, having seen so many superstar sagas, there's just this kind of, yeah, no shit. Like this is, this is how this works. And so uh, I am all about Giannis and the environment that he has helped create with the Bucks, I really am a sucker for the level of positivity they have as a group, the way they do seem to connect. Uh, Chris Middleton last year gave me a, a quote that was one of my favorites of the whole season when he said, we just don't have any assholes on this team. And so they've got a special thing, but that's, you know, you got to hit the fast forward button and tell me, you know, what the results are this season and then going into next summer if you're going to have a sense of what Giannis is going to do. This guy... It's not anything personal towards the Bucks. Uh, the, the stuff they have going for them, extremely functional and I think high-performing front office and uh, organizational infrastructure um, from GM John Horst down to Coach Mike Budenholzer. They have hired high-level people. And, and John, to be honest, is a guy, if you remember, who was you know kind of on the, the come-up when they gave him that job. And they, they kind of you know, they, they were getting him on the way up and there was some risk involved, but he's done a, a nice job. Uh, it's got, they have the new arena, the Pfizer forum, which is tremendous, but it's still a small market. And when you're a talent as incredible as Giannis Antetokounmpo, you are going to consider anything and everything. So this story is not going away to his credit. I think he is capable of compartmentalizing it and just making sure that the media knows that he's going to focus on basketball and, and figure the rest of the stuff out later. Yeah, and I think there's a couple things there. One, um, stars lately have shown, for the most part, the ability to do this. Um, I think Kyrie let it get out of control last year in Boston. Um, certainly there were blowups with KD, but he was awesome, and the Warriors made it to the finals and, and maybe would have won had he not gotten hurt so badly. Kawhi obviously was able to block it out. Um, LeBron's last year in Cleveland, he was fantastic, as good as he's ever been, actually. <laughs> um, and he, you know, was probably on his way out anyway. So it's it's doable where there is just a ton of pressure and it gets depressing, and then you get to the playoffs and you forget about it for a while is on the organization. It just it tests you. Um, and you have to be able to, you know, you do everything you can organizationally to try to to um endear yourself to the, to the talent. I mean, you certainly saw that in Toronto with the Raptors. They changed things that they've done for years in terms of shoot arounds and, and how they fly and what they eat on the plane and who gets to travel on the plane and all these kinds of things just to try to convince Kawhi to stay and they won it all, but it didn't work. So that will be, um, it'll, it will be interesting to see, you know, just how the bucks as an organization kind of hold kind of hold up to this, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And even, you know, listen, getting a chance to, I don't get to see that group all that often. Um, my my kind of, you know, takeaway from the limited time we had in Houston with them, and I'm talking about everything from, you know, talking to John Horst, talking to the coach, talking to the PR staff, they seem, that they are not shook. 
uh, by this situation. They don't seem to be living on the edge of their seat and, you know, nobody's looking at us in the media sideways and, and making us to be the bad guys here. Uh, when it comes to the way this story is getting framed, I just think they get it. And I think they feel pretty confident about what they have. And they also know that what happens this season, I mean, if you had a list of factors that are going to determine the outcome here, just the, the good old fashioned results are going to be the first thing. So if you're them, just don't get distracted. You know what I mean? It, it reminds me a little bit of, I mean, listen, when Kevin Durant was nearing free agency in Oklahoma city, uh, if I'm being honest, I, I don't. It was a very different vibe. There, there was uh, hypertension. There was, uh, I, you know, for whatever reason, just a sense that, you know, they they were trying to like control different situations, and I think they just were nervous that what ended up happening might actually happen. And I don't feel that yet. That could change as this season goes on, and that is where they're going to be compelling if the Bucks struggle, if they aren't the team like they were last year that had the best record in the regular season. And we shall see. I mean, on the X's and O's front, they they lose Malcolm Brogdon. They bring back most of their core. You know, they're a really good squad. I think they're one and one as we sit here talking. But, uh, I mean, we're going to be tracking that thing all the way to next summer. Yeah, and you just said it. Um, and that's that's kind of the thing, right? I mean, there, there were financial and, you know, I guess uh, basketball reasons not to bring Brogdon back. But that's something that if you're trying to start to look for a wedge or trying to say, well, here's Giannis's case to leave, um, you know, Brogdon was a guy, was one of his guys and, and you know, was a, an up and coming player, obviously. I mean, rookie of the year type stuff. And um, now he plays for the Pacers. And so I don't you think know, we can skip over, though, my understanding of it. I mean, you got to remember, you know, that that he's got to want to be there, too. And, as, yeah. you know. And and there was a strange – the question would be, you know, it's not this mm. simple, but did they choose between Eric Bledsoe and Malcolm Brockton? Because basketball-wise, everything I ever heard was that essentially Malcolm was not always content when it comes to, you know, the degree to which the ball was in his hands. And, you know, and Bled had a really good year last year. The, the folks who are critical of his game with good reason in the past look at it and say, you know, you, you ended up – picking him when he was at his peak and then we'll see who Malcolm becomes within, you know, the Indiana Pacers organization. But I, I think, you know, I just, that dynamic between the two of them, I believe came into play. Well, that, I mean, that's a fascinating, um, it's a fascinating point and it just made me think, okay, like what's, what's my frame of reference here when you said, well, part of it is the player has to want to be here. And I'm thinking about having a major superstar with a chance to win a title trying to make sure all the ducks are in a row to do everything you can to keep them. And you think back to that same situation in Cleveland, they did not have to trade Kyrie Irving, but they did in no small part because he didn't want to be here. Um, LeBron ultimately, I mean, if, if you want to get in the weeds, he wasn't like campaigning for them to keep him throughout the, that whole summer. But ultimately, when they did trade him, he asked them not to do that and was upset when they did. Um, and that he later told me that and we wrote it that that was the beginning of the end. And so, you know, I don't mean to put that kind that level of uh, that same kind of serious seriousness on the Brogdon move. But that's just that's what you talk about. Like, you know, are you trying to team build um, and you you try to find the best mix? So maybe Malcolm's not it. He's out of here. Or do you try to find the best group to win 
that year when your guy is up for either uh, a contract yeah, or, in this point. case, a contract extension? Well, on the positive side for Bucks fans, I keep trying to keep it positive for the folks who are paying. You are such a weenie. I'm just trying to be, you know, the approval ratings got to stay high, Joe. You got to know people. Come on, man. Um, no, but man, at least they didn't lose Brooke Lopez, you know. And, and not only that, I mean, my God, they added a Lopez, which, by the by the way, it's I can't believe I did this. I shoot around the other day. This is embarrassing, but that's okay. I'm going to make fun of myself. I'm looking around. We're we're in Houston, and I'm trying to figure out who I can talk to one on one versus being in the group. And I look over, and I and I see uh, I see a Lopez. And I was like, oh, that'd be good. I'll get the old head perspective. Uh, I, I don't know how the hell I, I mistook Robin for Brooke when their hair is so wildly different and even their physiques kind of different. Thankfully, I didn't actually walk up to Robin. But for a brief minute, I was uh, headed to talk to one Lopez when it, in fact, was the other. But they, wow. you know, basketball-wise, getting Brooke back was massive. We saw it in that win over the Rockets where mm-hmm. the joyful part of their victory uh, they went to Brook in the post quite a few times late because of the fact that the Rockets had gone small. And in fact, I was by the Bucks locker room right after the win and got a chance to see them all coming in. They honestly acted like it was a playoff victory. And Chris Middleton, some of the other guys with Brook, they were kind of chanting Brooklyn Brook, Brooklyn Brook. And at first, I didn't know what the hell they meant. And then it all made sense later. It's like, oh, they're talking about the fact that when he was with the Nets and he was an all-star, like this is the type of game he played. So Brooke is an important piece. Uh, they're still a really good team. They're going to win a ton of games. And, and like I wrote the other day, shameless plug here, when I had a chance to talk to Giannis one-on-one for quite a while, like his development and his next step as an MVP and, and the fact that he believes that he's only reached about 60% of his potential, like that – ironically is going to be, I think the most important factor in this entire thing. Cause if he takes another step, then it might not matter about all the stuff on the periphery with the bucks. You know, they might go out and win the whole damn thing. I actually, um, that's kind of a segue. Cause I wanted to, before we get out of here, I wanted to talk about something else that you wrote. You just wrote it. Um, but it, I think we need to just throw out there, uh, for a scene setter. So we're with these bucks guys and we are at Biggio's. Uh, so we're at the Houston uh, Astros Hall of Fame second baseman's bar, um, not far from Minute Maid Park at all. It's Craig and, Joe for you youngsters in the audience. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so, all right, so we walk in and there's like, I don't know, 330 televisions and 329 <laughs> of them are on the Astros <laughs> Nationals game, game two. And the one game that was on basketball was, um, it was like, like it, like the main bar area has like a 200 foot ceiling or something like that. And, and like basically at about 190 feet up is where there was one screen that had basketball. We couldn't see it the way where we were, we were facing this wall that had all these booths, right? Each booth has a TV. Well, apparently the TV on, on the wall over each booth. So there were four booths, four TVs in each booth. And then on top of the booths, there was a TV and those TVs were bigger. All eight of those TVs had the Astros on and, you know, we're a basketball table. And so we asked for them to put on the Wednesday night games. I I can't even remember now who they were, um, but we wanted to see those. And uh, the answer was no, because because why? Because the TVs were the TV on top of the wall was connected to the TV in the booth. Yes, I there think. were people in the booth 
physically sitting, eating, drinking. And if you change the one on top, it also changes the one in their booth. So in the beginning, that was the rationale. Also, I just have to throw this out there. Brett Dawson, we wanted to have him on, talk Lakers and talk OKC. We ended up getting to watch the game. Um, I was drinking Miller Lite, um, I think, in honor of our company. But the rest of you, the Bucks guys included, were drinking these uh, like craft beers, basically. What, what does that even mean, in honor of our company? Oh, our, no, no, the Bucks company. The, our company, yeah. I thought yeah, you like meant our, the our, Athletic. I'm trying no, to figure out the, the Milwaukee athletic. ties to the Athletic. No, 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 no. That's just, a good uh, call, man. You're always you're such a, a former political yeah. writer. You're always thinking about the angle, trying to schmooze with your well, Miller especially tie-in. because they're all Wisconsin Badger fans, and they were gonna they had they had to play the Buckeyes uh, on Saturday, and we knew the ass whooping that was coming. So I thought I would try to be between you know the Wisconsin game that was coming and everything that they had had to deal with that day with Giannis and Harvard. I thought the least I could do was t- toss down a couple Miller lights. All right, listen, I want you, uh, um, you've been in Houston for six weeks, as we've been saying, <laughs> um, you've talked to literally everyone who works for the Houston Rockets, uh, during that time. And today, Monday, you published, um, a Q and a with Daryl. Um, I'll do this part for you and say it doesn't get into China and the the whole mess there because he just doesn't want to or can't talk about it. Um, and so at some point you got to move on to basketball and that's what you two did. And I think like, why don't you just take a minute to kind of highlight the important parts of, of that story? Yeah. I mean, to be fair to the Rockets, uh, he's choosing not to address China. And the distinction there is that nobody is telling him that he can't. And that's not just propaganda that I'm peddling, um, you know, personally, asked Daryl if he would, you know, let us be the ones to talk to him about China. Um, he's just simply choosing not to, he's not being restricted. Uh, that's my understanding, but he is just moving on to basketball. I think it doesn't take, and I wrote this corny line. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that he just simply doesn't see the upside in saying anything. Uh, if we've already seen anybody who speaks up on this issue ends up pissing off one side or the other and, and, for business purposes, Daryl has already done more than enough damage, so he's going to move on when it comes to the basketball. Um, here's the irony, since you said I'd been in Houston for six weeks. There's a quote, that the interview that we did went very deep on the Russell Westbrook trade. Um, the Thunder are in town tonight, so it's a reunion game with Chris Paul in town. And that was the point of trying to talk to Daryl, was behind the scenes on how that trade went down. I thought he was very good. Some of the stuff that he shared had been written elsewhere before some of it had not, but I'm, you know, you and I both spent a ton of time trying to share with the, the hoops fans out there, just how these trades come to pass. And so on that front, he was really good. But the irony is that he said that the, the five days in which uh, they went from knowing that the Westbrook trade was possible to getting it done felt like two months. And that's extreme. It's very analogous to my, Rockets road trip right now. I've been here five days. It feels like two months, so I can relate. Um, but it, this trade was super interesting. I mean, he called it the most intense that he has ever done in his entire career. This is a guy who became the GM of the Rockets in 2007. I wish I had the number on how many transactions he has executed. Uh, it's definitely in the triple digits. For all I know, it's in you know four digits. Uh, he's probably the most aggressive executive in the league is constantly trying to swing for the fences and pull off trades like this one. Um, and it was, you know, at, to paint the picture, I guess a little bit, 
for anybody who doesn't remember, you know, the Rockets at that time in mid-July were in Las Vegas <clears throat> for Summer League. Uh, Paul George had already essentially forced his way to the Clippers. Brett Dawson and I, back when Brett was covering the Thunder, had before just, he was watching Watchmen. Yes, before Watchmen, he was. We did a co byline action talking about how now that Paul George is gone, uh, how you know our Russell Westbrook's days in OKC numbered. You know that column certainly was on the mark. And before you know it, uh, in some back room somewhere, proverbially, it's not even a word, but James Harden, Russ connected and made it very clear that they wanted to play together and that's how this league operates right now because at that point you know it's the rockets chewing on the idea of what do we think of basically swapping russ or chris paul for russell westbrook but then as daryl talks about a lot in the interview and this is the stuff that the hardcore basketball fans you know should nerd out on is that this is not about two players this is about the picks and the pick swaps and the protections and that is the stuff that kept Daryl up at night and his entire staff because, as he says, his job is to protect the organization um, in the future. And every time you give up a future asset, uh, there's an element of risk involved with that. And so in a vacuum, he clearly felt very good about the idea of giving you know, this Russ idea a try and having Chris Paul go to OKC. It was everything that was attached, two first-round picks, two pick swaps, and uh, this trade was was a, a big deal that they just went back and forth over the course of those five days. He called James Harden on the day the deal got done and told James the deal was off. And then lo and behold, a couple hours later, the deal gets done. Uh, final thought there, just to give you a sense of how it went down. And this was not in the story, but like Mike D'Antoni had weighed in at, at, at an early point and given his opinion on the basketball side, but really not to any great degree. And I believe he was sitting on a bench in, at the gym in Vegas at UNLV, um, and he got the news with an you know an alert on his phone before he even heard internally that this thing was done. And then he got a phone call quickly from Daryl. So uh, wild story, and, and now we're going to see how this iteration looks with Russ. So I totally disagree with what you said. Daryl thinks is is his is his job, which I think you said was to protect, to protect the organization's future or something to that degree. I, I feel like, and, 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 and I want to preface this or, or for context, the, the, the other giant trade from the, this, this off season, the Clippers, um, they were banging their heads against the wall over the picks just fretting and worried about the picks. I mean, you know, they, they knew they needed to get Paul George to make the Kawhi thing work. They knew that obviously they did it, but the thing that gave them the heartburn just like with Daryl, uh, was the picks. And what I would say to, to them, I mean, I like, yes, they're fun and yes, they're, they're it's great to nerd out on and you always want to have options for the future, but, but not at the expense of the present. And I am so firmly in the boat of you do what you can to win now because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. Um, you don't hang on to picks now so you have a chance to win in the future if hanging on prevents you from increasing your chance now. Not to um, mention, I, I actually I completely agree with your disagreement of me. That makes any damn sense. <laughs> but um, to fill in the gaps there. First of all, with James Harden alone, you're going to win 50-plus games, so the, those picks are not going to be great at right. the end of the day. 
Great. Um, so that comes into play. Secondly, I, I buried the lead. Daryl certainly didn't highlight this or headline this, but 100% the top of mind analysis that was happening was, hey, by the way, how do we feel about the idea that Russell Westbrook has had some sort of knee procedure almost every single summer of his career? Um, yeah. He's got a long, long health history and a explosive game that it's a little bit like the old man's version of Zion Williamson where you just watch a, a player like this and you just hope every time he takes the floor that he gets off of it healthy. Yeah. Because that's how explosive he is. That was a major consideration. I also think, again, category of things that Daryl wasn't eager to get into, um, the Chris Paul dynamic with James Harden, in my opinion, this is informed you know, perspective here, is it had run its course. And if it didn't run its course by the end of the season from a personal dynamic standpoint, what had definitely made it more challenging and this is, you know, the way I've read the room is the media stuff over the summer, whether it's Yahoo Sports reporting that Chris had demanded a trade, which the Rockets certainly refuted, but then plenty of reporting from then from myself and others that there was a lot of tension in that room. And, you know, it's funny because in this interview, Daryl went out of his way to make the point that when he talked to James about the, the Westbrook trade, that one of the first things James had said is, is there any way of pulling this thing off without losing Chris? And just his point was that James always wants to stack the deck as much as possible from a talent standpoint. So it's kind of like, all right, fine. I get that idea. I'm not saying there's no way James ever would have played with Chris, but I do think that, you know, that, that personal dynamic, Chris and the way that, that he definitely he's an incredible player, you know, and a guy who, is is going to go down as an all-time great but he grinds on teammates the you know over the course of his time with the team his old clippers teammates would tell you that and there was you know plenty of that i think within the rockets walls uh, as well yeah and so it, you know i was thinking getting ready for this podcast today um we talk so much about Kawhi and paul george and we talk about lebron and ad um, star power wise, I mean, James Harden, uh, <laughs> is the two time defending scoring champ in our league and Russ Westbrook was the MVP before he was. And so, you know, we don't talk as much about this duo, but, but they should, um, keep that rockets window open a little bit longer and maybe even widen it or, or, or extend it, um, from where it was, you know, I, I, that was kind of the thing that was sitting with me at that game on Thursday night, leaving the, like the, like part of the Giannis Harvard thing is it drove home the point about championship windows and the bucks is going to be open for as long as he's there. He might not be there that much longer or he could be. So that's the one story. The other story is the rockets window has been open for a while. They probably could have, or should have climbed through it in 2018, um, up three, two, Chris Paul gets hurt, but yeah, I mean, they, they still had a shot there in game seven. And then last year the Warriors were hurt and the Rockets couldn't get it done. So I, I, I think it was probably time for all the reasons that you just said. And then this in general, um, it was probably time to do something like this. And now I feel like the Rockets have retooled. Um, they, they have these two superstars and they've also made their bench better. I think, I think Tabo is going to help. I don't know about Tyson Chandler because he's as old as we are, um, but you know okay he, so far. He, that's what you I'm saying. Last year, yeah, I know. But last, last year, two years. I actually, 
it's funny. I felt like a, a coaching consultant the other day. Um, I think I shared this with Mike D'Antoni, but it might have been somebody else on their staff where I was making the point that last year with Tyson and the Lakers, he was like their plus minus king for the first two months of the year. Whenever that guy was on the floor, he was tremendous. And then he hit the old man wall like two months in. And I was telling them, like, you guys need to, you know, get with your your uh, your numbers guys and your health and medical side and figure out how to parse out his energy over the course of the entire season to avoid that because when he's feeling fresh, he's still a, a I think a, a nice big and an impact player. Yeah. All right. Uh, you and I could talk for hours. Um, so we'll pick this Let up me, next week. We'll pick it up next week. Hold on. I need to get your opinion. Do you think the Rockets are going to work or not? Cause I I've actually really enjoyed okay. watching them and they're fun to watch because it's either, it's either a little bit of that James Harden creativity that is okay in doses, but boring for 35 minutes. Uh, so now it's less of that and Russ going a hundred miles an hour and picking up the pace. So the aesthetics have changed. But uh, in, as we handicap title contenders, you know, what, where do you think these Rockets fall? Yeah, I mean, watching them on Thursday, um, I, I thought to myself, yeah, I kind of get this. Um, I don't know if they have enough to get over the Clippers, but I like the the Harden-Westbrook pairing early. Um, you know, Russ has led the league in assists at least last year, maybe the last two. Um, so I, I really actually like that. And then I, I, I really like um, – PJ Tucker and, and Eric Gordon. Uh, I think that they do things, you know, they do great things and, you know, God, Capella helps get, get them up and down from a big perspective. Um, they made some adjustments there on the bench. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it. I, I'm actually, I, I feel good about the Rockets. I feel better than I did um, before we all got started. All right. We shall see. Thank you, my yeah. friend. Yes. Thank you. Uh, come get home. Uh, and our thoughts, obviously, um, go out to everybody dealing with these fires in, in Los Angeles, scary times out there. So we got them in our uh, neck of the woods too, brother. Yeah, it's man, not, that's what I'm saying. Good. So yeah. be, be careful, be safe, take care of that family. And, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be, we'll be here next week. Yes, sir.